Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. A long list of people involved this week, including Lauren, Lachlan, Tim, James, Camille and Justin. This week we talk about a random assortment of topics, from a randomness and how it's mathematically defined and exists in our lives, bees and how they've changed every millions of years, dinosaurs as apex predators, Australians discovering frogs in unlikely places, and robots helping keep people company in space. And now we launch into our Launchpad News segment. So, have you ever lost anything? Think about how you might look for that thing that you've lost. Do you just run around in circles? Do you move carefully looking through each cubic centimetre of your bedroom or other place of mess to try and find it? How do you actually look? This, this kind of brings up an interesting idea of what randomness is. Some, well, at, at, a, at, a, at, a, at a certain level, if you say something's random, you can just accept, sure, yep, I'm, I'm totally fine with that. However, the idea of true randomness is actually quite elusive and Surprisingly, you can often fit mathematical models to supposedly random motion. And this is, and coming back to the idea of looking for something, this is in fact what a lot of animals found to do in some new research. Yeah, and that's, and it's really, really interesting um, bit of mathematics and science. So the idea, as James was mentioning about randomness, is really interesting. And one, one definition that you might understand is called Brownian motion. And you might hear this term thrown around all the time. And what it actually is, it's, it's, it's used to define like, the random movement of gas molecules in air. And they have energy, so they bounce around between each other. And the motion overall is said to be Brownian motion because at the end, the net position of them is viewed to have not changed. And the net energy, net forces in the system is viewed to have not changed. A bit complicated, you know, molecular chemistry there, but it's, that is one of the few types of ideally random motion that we can describe. Now, um, what they've then looked at is, well, what other types of um, what other types of random motion are out there? And they've been suspecting that there's, uh, you know, some patterns that are emerging. And one of those t- patterns is called a Levi flight. It's a it's a random work walk, or a, I guess a pseudo random walk, um, because it can actually be re- relatively mathematically modelled. Um, even though the, the motion at any given time might not be modelled, the overall pattern behaviour or the distribution of that motion can be modelled. So scientists have been looking at humans, sharks, honeybees, and a whole bunch of other evidences in nature of, how, of reproducing this similar pattern. And so what is a Levi walk? Well, it's, as James described, a pattern where you start at one place, you make a few random movements around one location. So if you want to think about it another way, standing in your bedroom, moving around your bedroom, looking here and there for something, then moving to the kitchen. And then in the kitchen, poking around there for a bit in a few random directions, and then moving to the lounge room. That kind of motion is called a Levi walk, a few small joints around one spot and then moving a long distance to another spot and moving around. And this has actually been observed by anthropologists, by biologists, and all sorts of people doing research. Most recently, they've actually modelled this on human behaviour as well. So some hunter-gatherers in Tanzania, the Hadza people, were given GPS trackers on wristwatches. And then this motion was then observed and modelled over time. And that was found when they were hunting to actually follow this Levi walk, this hunting in one area, moving to another large area, hunting there. And that's how they're using it to to hunt and and forage for food. Now, sharks do exactly the same thing, which is really cool because if a shark can't find any food in its immediate environment, 
when it when it's in its immediate environment, it sort of bounces around using Brownian motion. If it can't find anything there, they'll go, okay, fine, I'm going to swim to a new area and take the same approach. So it shifts from one method of random motion to another. And honeybees do exactly the same thing when they're looking for pollen uh, and flowers. So what this is saying to us, which is really interesting, is that we are programmed to use this approach. Somewhere in our genes or in our genetics or in our histories, we've learned or developed this approach that's actually pretty universal across nature uh, and, and is an optimum way of search, or at least it's optimum enough that we've all picked it up. Um, and it can be actually pretty accurately mathematically modeled. It just goes to show what you might think would be a random motion actually has a lot of science and a lot of complex mathematics behind it. And this is one of those things like the golden ratio, pi, phi floating around that keep reappearing throughout nature as well as human you know, discoveries. And it just goes to show how ingrained deeply mathematics is on such a fundamental level to everything in our world. So in related news to the fantastic frog discoveries in New York, an Australian researcher has been doing some interesting studying of frogs as well in Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam. And she's actually made a discovery of her own, also finding a brand new species of frog. Uh, the Australian researcher, Jody Rowley, has discovered a new species of flying frog inside Ho Chi Minh City. So Camille, what's, what's going on here? So the reason why this type of frog this type of frog is called a flying frog is because it has huge web feet that allow it to glide or um, parachute across forest canopies. So the, the frogs climb these trees, right, and they're sitting at the top of the trees, croaking, finding bugs, having a good time, and to escape predators or to travel, that is leap. Well, leap just, out of these trees. Just <laughs> gliding along, just casually. So are you saying you have predatory frogs that are gliding out from the heights and taking down enemies. No, no, no. Look, we've already established in previous podcasts that snakes can leap out of trees and fly for, like, 25 metres. Why can't a frog? Why can't a frog? But this frog is basically Batman. This frog is basically Batman. Frogman? Frogman. It's um, what the forest uh, bordering Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam is needs. Hmm. So, so, so this researcher, this Australian researcher, was looking. She's an amphibian expert for the University, uh, sorry, for Australian Museum in Sydney, and she was look. She was focusing on frogs that were living on the fringes of cities in Ho Chi Minh City, and she brought back a whole bunch of different frogs, but found this one uh, that looked a little bit different, and she suspected it might be a bit unusual, but because uh, it was very big and very impressive, it was about ten centimeters long, and it looked very different to the other frogs in the rice paddies that she was finding. And uh, they came back and they did molecular testing on it and they determined that, in fact, yes, it is a new species. And so it's been named Racoporus helenae, which means Helen's frying frog. And this Australian researcher, Jodie Rowley, has named it after her mother who was recently diagnosed with ovarian cancer, which is a lovely tribute and also a fantastic piece of science being conducted by Australians, not quite in Australia, but actually trying to shed some light on the ways that animals, like frogs, can adapt to our urban environments on our urban fringe, much like our legless snakes, that, legless lizards that we talked about previously, and the amazing Bronx frog. So you might have been paying attention a couple of months ago to the news and heard the fantastic story about how Japan was launching a robot to keep people company in space. 
And this is a part of a, a project called the Kibo Robot Project. And you, you might laugh at Japan for being crazy and, you know, doing, oh, Japan, making such crazy robots again. But this is actually a really interesting idea to actually try and make a robot that is able to hold conversations, build a sense of companionship and build an attachment or a, try to mimic and understand emotions in people. So instead of just being the cold, calculated killing machines that we have in Terminators, we actually get robots with think with emotions and feeling. And now um, there is a one of the most famous concepts in robotics is known as the Turing test, where a robot or a computer, um, if it's able to, if a human is able to have a conversation with a robot, and that conversation is, if a human can potentially confuse a robot for a human, another human. Then this thing is said to have passed the Turing test, and it's a major milestone on the um, on the path towards smart and learning robots. Now, this robot doesn't quite pass the Turing test, but it does have what's known as a um, what's known as an adaptive linguistic capacity. So, as it talks to people, it also observes their responses, and it can eventually can learn to say things that sound more human. The astronauts on the space station have reported that they do begin to build a relationship with this machine. Even though it's not intelligent, it's not actually living and it's not, it can't hold an, a, a real, what, what you'd call a real conversation, uh, people on the, spa, yeah, the astronauts on the space station are developing an, a relationship with this robot because it is someone to, it's some, someone to talk to. Even if they can't say anything very smart back, is some is a, that layer of human interaction, which is crucial for um, maintaining maintain mental well being in isolated environments. And that's really important because this robot wasn't just kept on the ground; it wasn't done in a research lab. It was actually launched onto the International Space Station with a Japanese astronaut. So it's a really another interesting part of building up the astronauts and the humans' response to the psychological response to isolation, as well as helping make our robots more intelligent. So, for example, and here's a nice little thing, um, the, the researchers, when they were making this robot, they didn't know how to respond because they basically programmed with a series of, uh, you know, a, a, a series of toolkits, of linguistic toolkits, but it's not programmed, pre-programmed with any response. So that's also what makes the conversations a bit more interesting. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, so, for example, they, uh, they have released a video of the, of the astronaut, uh, Koichi Wakata, talking to the robot, and he said, you know, he says he's glad to meet the robot named Kirabo. And he asked the robot, you know, how it feels about being in zero gravity. And the robot's response is, I'm used to it now. It's no problem at all. And how it came now this, up... Now, this response wasn't pre-programmed into the robot's memory. This was a, a response it developed from recording and analyzing conversations it had had with the astronauts beforehand. Uh, so when it recognized words like zero gravity environment and how it feels, it was able to use a, a processing, um, use its processor and its association, the associations that it had, the software had developed for it to come up with a response that sounds like something a human would say. And, and look, and that is a really, a really reasonable approximation of actually how we work as humans as well. And what they found is really interesting is the building of the relationship between the human and robot and the, the basically the databases of processing that the robot needs to get experience with also helps it learn. Um, and they're actually starting to see improved responses as the project goes on. I love, one of the part about the story is, is that I love is that they actually have two robots. 
and one of them went up into the spaceship and the other one is left actually behind um, to also perform a bit of a control for the experiment. And it's a really interesting part of piece of science of robotics research merging with linguistics along with psychology, all in space. The late Cretaceous period is a terrible time to be alive if you're a small herbivore because terrible dinosaurs are out there hunting for you. And one of the largest predators ever discovered has just been unveiled, the Siach Mikorum, one of the apex predators of the late Cretaceous period, which actually oppressed even Tyrannosaurus rex. So what we're talking about here is the, uh, a newly discovered dinosaur, um, the Siach Mikorum, which is actually named after a cannibalistic man-eating monster from the Ute, the local area tribal legend. And again, we talked about how amazing these dinosaur names are. Um, this one is actually a very interesting predator. It's a large allosaurid, which means it's kind of similar in style as a bipedal carnivorous dinosaur to the T-Rex, but from a different family. And it lived in the Cretaceous period, which is about 120, 100 to 120 million years ago. So again, a very long time ago. And it was actually from before uh, the Tyrannosaurus. And why this, this sort of story is interesting is because this dinosaur was actually at the top of the food chain. It was the apex predator. No one else could touch this dinosaur. And it basically ruled the roost, much like a lion does in the African savannah. So does that mean when the T-Rex finally evolved, they just came and, like, take the crown and took the crown immediately, fought, out, fought it out, you know, became the new apex predator? Well, it's, it's really cool to imagine, like, dinosaurs just, like, one coming along and being, like, eating the other ones and like that establishing dominance. But it wasn't mm-hmm. that simple. The actual relationship between the Siach and the Allosaurids and the Tyranids, like the Tyrannosaurus rex, was one more like lions and hyenas. So we've all seen Lion Kings and we see how uh, the lions kill the animals and hunt and the hyenas sort of come in and pick up all the scraps and scavenge off it and they're much smaller in size. And that was basically the relationship for millions of years that the Allosaurids and the Tyranids had. But what happened over that time was that once these dinosaurs started to, uh, to die out a bit for whatever reason, they were outcompeted by these scavenger dinosaurs, the Tyranids, like Tyrannosaurus, and eventually the Tyrannosauruses became the apex predators. So instead of having one massive uh, lion, we now had this massive hyenas instead. And this swap happened over a very, very long period of time, 30 million years. And it's really interesting to think about because when you consider how long humans have been the apex predator, which is about 10,000 years. So we're nowhere near approaching the apex predator title like the T-Rex was? Longest serving apex predator? No, I don't think we can take that claim yet. But it's interesting to think about the way evolution works. So once this uh, dominance was slowly started to challenge, there would have been an equilibrium point, and then one slowly became more in dominance over the other. Now, do we have any any competitors like that in for mankind? The interesting thing is, I don't think from the timescale we're in at the moment, there's any other apex predators for humanity. Maybe, you know, global warming, asteroids but they're not really predators in our in our ecosystem dolphins well dolphins could be and it'd be it'd be like over a period of tens of tens of thousands of or tens of billions of years dolphins suddenly uh, started to evolve and uh, became the ones who were fishing us up in their nets um, <laughs> but it's interesting to think about just how small amount of time it's taken for humanity to develop 
and how long a time the dinosaurs did in fact reign, evolve and change. Mm-hmm. Which is why we have so many fantastic dinosaurs fossils to study. So we're just talking about massive extinctions and the big one that occurred about 65 million years ago when the dinosaurs died out and we saw the rise of the mammals. But it wasn't just the dinosaurs that died out. A lot of life was taken out by the massive amount of change that occurred in our climate. And, for example, bees also underwent a massive extinction just at the same time as dinosaurs. Now, if it was a particular problem that hit just the dinosaurs, then you would expect only them to die out. But the fact that there was a massive extinction in bees as well suggests that the, whatever extinction event occurred was obviously very large that had wide-ranging impacts on the entire ecosystem. But, Justin, we see bees now. How, how can you tell that they went extinct? Well, so what they've actually found is, and you might think this is pretty logical, but we don't have very good fossils of bees. Most of the fossil, <laughs> fossilised bees we have come from um, where things that have been trapped in mud or in, in uh, amber or other sources where they're protected over the millions and millions of years. Um, but they found basically uh, from DNA sequencing, they actually analysed the different species and the distributions that they've occurred and some of the fossilised samples. And what they found is that the species that, that, that are nowadays alive and present are of different genetic types or basically tribes than the ones that they have in the fossilised records, which is really interesting, which basically means one set of bees effectively managed to survive, but all the rest died out. And this is what we've often seen as well with a lot of the mammals and birds for that matter too. So it just goes to show, even if you're uh, from apex predator or at the bottom of the food chain like a bee is, uh, a big change in the climate can have a lot of impact on your life. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. This week we've recapped everything from bees and dinosaurs going extinct and even the impacts of apex predators, randomness in mathematics and everyday life, robots learning languages, and Australian discoveries about frogs in unusual places. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.